You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. In today's episode, we're talking about the case of the unnameable band. A rock band wanted to copyright their name, The Slants. Simple, right? But their U.S. Copyright Office refused because they said the band's name was offensive to Asians. Even though this case was about a rock band, the questions it brought up had much broader applications, like when can the government censor someone's speech? And who gets to decide what's offensive? And why are we at Beckett talking about this case? What does it have to do with religious liberty? Let's find out. One of the points we often make at Beckett is that religious liberty is closely tied to other fundamental freedoms. If you're thinking about first freedoms, your mind probably automatically jumps to freedom of speech. Right. And free speech and free exercise of religion are intimately connected. So at Beckett, we're always watching free speech cases to see where they intersect with religious liberty. And that's why today we're talking about a free speech case that started with a man named Simon Tam his Asian heritage, and his love of music. My name is Simon Tam. I'm the founder and bassist of The Slants. Remember counting the days, remember grasping for moments. Freedom was a digital way, remember thinking the world... So I grew up in San Diego, California, kind of born in the early 80s, to a pair of immigrant parents, one from the China region, one from Taiwan. Uh, So I kind of grew up with this half um, identity, like one foot in the door of, you know, being born and raised as an American and the other kind of trying to figure out who I was in terms of my Asian heritage as well. And as a kid, I started taking lessons and music became just this wonderful escape for me. Uh, But it also was just like the, for me, the ultimate form of expression. Like it allowed me to kind of get all the stuff I was feeling out into a medium that I could actually connect with. Life for an Asian American kid wasn't always easy, and being bullied at school was a lesson for Simon in how important words can be. I had to learn to adapt pretty quickly. I mean, as a kid, I was I was bullied uh, pretty significantly um, multiple times. I was I was violently attacked. People used racial slurs as as they kind of beat me up in schools, and like I had to learn how to be very, very quick on my feet in terms of dealing with those situations. So there's this one particular memory that always jumps out at me. It's in seventh grade. And back in the seventh grade, we kind of had this responsibility of cleaning up the yard during PE. Well, on this one particular day, it was my turn. So as I was picking up volleyball nets and the basketballs that were out in the field, I could feel myself being shoved to the ground. And when I looked up, there's four guys standing over me. And shortly after that, they just began hitting me in the face, kicking me in the stomach, throwing sand in my eyes, all while yelling two words again and again. They kept yelling, Jap and gook. And I was terrified, and I didn't really know what to do until one point, something in me just snaps. I look at them, and I said, I'm a chink. Like, that's how stupid you are. You can't even be racist properly. And they immediately stopped and walked away. And that's when I kind of learned a little bit that, you know, there's power in claiming an identity. There's power in saying, you don't get to define who I am or the terms that I want to be identified as. I get to choose that. And you can't use that against me. 
This realization that he could reclaim a negative, hateful word would lead Simon on a defining path, a path that ultimately brought him to the Supreme Court. But the way it started out was with a band. And for the record... (laughs) I don't think anyone, like, starts a band thinking they're going to go to the Supreme Court. And if they did, I would tell them that is the worst idea in the world. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. But, you know, like, here we are. But back to the beginning. The idea for the band came from one particular night when I was watching a movie as Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. And there's this very particular scene where a woman named Orni, she begins walking into a restaurant with her gang of crazy idiots. It's the like Yakuza or Asian mafia that she'd led. Now, that particular scene really struck me because it was the first time that I had ever seen an American-produced film at that point that actually showed Asians as cool, confident, and sexy. Like back then, the only kind of representation we had in American movies were characters like Long Duck Dong and Sixteen Candles, or these kind of over-racial stereotypes. So when I saw that, I thought, wow, this is really amazing. And I also thought, if Hollywood is bad, then the music industry is really worse, because I started thinking about how Um, You know, this is 2004 when I saw the movie that back then, even though there were over 17 million Asian Americans, I couldn't think of a single one that had been profiled by Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, Spin Magazine, or Billboard. And so I thought, you know, something needs to change. And that's kind of when the idea for having an Asian American band started. Simon wanted the name of their new rock band to reflect their Asian American heritage. Well, you know, if you want to have a band, you got to have a band name. And so I started asking all the friends I had in the Portland, Oregon area, which is where I moved. And I said, hey, uh, what's something you think, you know, all Asian people have in common? And they would immediately say slanted eyes, which I always thought was fascinating because, you know, first of all, it's not true. Like not all Asian people have slanted eyes and we're also not the only people on the planet with slanted eyes. But more importantly, I always associated slanted eyes with shame because, you know, that's why I was beat up all the time. And because Asians are some of the most bullied kids in America, I knew that I wasn't alone. So I thought, what if I could change it from embarrassment to empowerment? Like this this idea, this stereotype that we're always like shameful about. What if that could become an identity that we could actually be proud of? They became the slants. You know, the funny thing is when I started the band, I never intended it to be some kind of social political project. I just thought, well, I want to provide some representation for my community and and play some music. But that was kind of about it. It, it wasn't until we, we launched that I started getting all these letters from like Asian American kids across this country saying, thank you for existing. Thank you for showing me that I could be something else. And when I started getting those kinds of notes, I realized that whether we liked it or not, we were going to be held to this kind of other standard. The slants became Simon's full-time job, writing, playing, recording, and touring, and they were gaining fans. 2009, our band started getting a lot of traction. We were in a lot of headlines, getting a lot of radio play. Um, Around this time period, some fans reached out to me, and they told me that they bought tickets to our show in Arizona, uh, which we were definitely not in the state at all, Turns out uh, there was another band who started calling themselves the Slants. 
And when our fans found out that it was the wrong band that they bought tickets for, the venue refused to give them their money back. And so they're, they're trying to explain the situation. I realized there wasn't anything I could really do about it. You know, the venue kind of stiffed them saying like, you bought tickets to see a band called The Slants. There's a band called The Slants. Too bad. Uh, so all I could do was kind of like, you know, send them some merch and, and apologize. Later on, I found out that, you know, the mechanism that's used to prevent confusion in the marketplace would be the trademark registration system. And that's when uh, my friend and attorney, Spencer Trowbridge, says, you ought to apply to register for your band's trademark. And the way you do trademarks in the United States, not the only way, but the predominant way you do them is you register them with the federal government so that you can have protection under the federal trademark law. That's Beckett President Mark Rienzi. Beckett ended up filing a friend of the court brief in Simon Tam's case, but we'll get to that a little later. Anyway, Simon's attorney friend was urging him to register the slants. So that was late 2009 when all that started going down. At first, I was actually extremely reluctant because I was like, this is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take forever. But he assures me it's only a few hundred bucks. And he says in like six months or less, this whole thing is going to be over. Famous last words. So we apply, and in spring of 2010, uh, Spencer calls me up and he says, Hey, we got a problem with your application. And of course, I'm like, What is it? You know, did I, did I fill out something wrong? But he says, No, he says, the, the trademark office says the name of your band is disparaging to persons of Asian descent. And of course, I'm like, Wait, does disparaging mean what I think it means? I'm like, Are they saying we're racist to Asian people? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, do they know we're of Asian descent? And he's like, I think that's kind of obvious. And of course, I'm like, there's all kinds of offensive stuff out there. Like, I didn't even know there was a law against this. What does it actually say? And so that's when he reads me Section 2A of the Lanham Act. That's when I find out that such a law actually exists that says you can't register trademarks that are considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. Under the Lanham Act, trademarks can be denied for various reasons. One provision is known as the Disparagement Clause, which says that the registration of a trademark can be denied if it, quote, may disparage persons, living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, or bring them into contempt or disrepute. There's a two-part test here. The first determines the likely meaning of the market issue. If that meaning refers to, quote, identifiable persons, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, then the second part of the test determines whether the mark is, quote, disparaging to a substantial composite of the referenced group. If that sounds a little confusing and incredibly subjective, that's because it is. So the government might not approve your trademark if they determine that it's disparaging to some, quote, substantial portion of people. Simon found out just how undefined this piece of the process was. I find out that it's not just like what anyone considers to be disparaging. The government has to find what's called a substantial composite of the reference group. So in this case, a whole lot of Asian people have to be really upset by our name in order for them to deny us this right. And I'm like, we just spent our last few years touring and working with our community. Who, who, who did they find who was actually upset? And that's when he tells me, no one. He says that the government was relying entirely on an entry on UrbanDictionary.com, like a wiki joke website. And 
you know, it, it shocks me because like that kind of stuff isn't even acceptable in a junior high classroom. And yet the federal government with all its resources and power is using that to deny my rights. Simon wanted to appeal the government's decision. At this point, it was 2011 and he had a new attorney. And my new attorney says, look, as long as you fight like this, you're not going to win. He says, um, the law has been around for 70 years and no one has ever won an appeal. So anytime the government says this is offensive, this is disparaging or whatever it might be, uh, even if they're wrong and you correct them on it, um, they've never admitted that they were wrong. So he says, you know, no one's ever won on appeal. You're not going to be the first. But he says, I think we should reapply and maybe we'll get a different result. Well, we reapply and the trademark office gives us the exact same examining attorney. So that guy copies and pastes his rejection and it starts the whole mess over again. This was obviously discouraging, but in the process, Simon and his attorney noticed something weird. We decided to take a step back, more like, hold on a second. If slant is this inherent racial slur that you claim it is, how come you gave it to everybody else? Because we looked it up and it turns out there were over 800 applications for slant. All of them were fine. Everything from slant shack, slanted records, slant no rant, like whatever you could think of, any other slant was fine. But when it came to the slants, it was not. You know, like I'm the only person in all of U.S. history to be denied a registration for slant. So he said, why? Like, what is it about this ban that's different than all these other slant applications? Well, the government came back and said, it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian ban. Thus, there's an association with the meaning. In other words, if people see the words, the slants, and they see our faces, well, they can't help but think racial slur instead of any other definition in the dictionary. Um, that's just kind of a more convoluted way of saying anyone can register the slants as long as they're not Asian. And of course, an everyday average person who isn't even familiar with trademark law would be like, hey, ethically, shouldn't the person who's from that community actually get the benefit of the doubt, not the other way around? So it just, the whole thing just seemed really backwards and upside down. Simon Tam decided to go to court over this. Suing the government, it's a big deal. It takes time. Simon knew it wasn't going to be a quick fix for his own band, but by this time, he was invested in the principle behind it. But I thought, you know, my band's probably going to break up by the whole time, by the whole time, like, this, this is all done. Um, I just thought I needed to do this because I didn't want anyone else to go through this humiliating and degrading experience that I was going through. Then, when I found out how the law was actually being used, which is primarily against minorities in this country who also, like me, were too Asian or too, too whatever it was that the government didn't like, and when I learned how just wildly inconsistent the law actually was, I realized that those aren't the kind of laws that we want in our society, that that kind of law needed to be taken down. Beckett President Mark Rienzi interpreted Tam's initial arguments this way. Somehow or other, Mr. Tam found his way to some smart First Amendment lawyers who brought a made a federal case out of it, as they should have, and said, look, the federal government actually doesn't have the authority 
to pretend to protect us all from ideas that might hurt our feelings. Instead, the federal government is supposed to regulate the marketplace of ideas neutrally, if at all. And they're not allowed to sit there and say, well, we're going to silence some ideas that make other people uncomfortable. And that's really what the disparagement clause tries to do. He won at the trial court, but the government appealed it, first to a three-judge panel where Simon won again. Then the government appealed it to the entire Court of Appeals, where, again, Simon won. That was in 2015, so already he's been doing this for six years. Even though he had been winning, opposing the government in a years-long court battle was no walk in the park. One of the most demoralizing moments was the first time I got a, a, an appellate printing bill, because I didn't know what appellate printing was. And then next thing you know, I, I get a bill for $6,000 for some copies and staples. And I just thought, what am I doing with my life? You know, <laughs> like at one point, like I, I actually had to leave being a full-time musician to fight this case. I had to take all these side hustles, all these jobs. Um, it was bankrupting me. I was, I, I lost several original band members of mine, de like dear friends of mine, because they, like this was destroying their music career. I, at one point, I mean, it got so rough where I was skipping multiple meals a day because that's all I could afford. I could only afford one meal a day because I was worried about the next printing bill that I might receive or the next set of Lexus Nexus fees or, or whatever else, like, like court fees that I had to deal with. Like, I mean, those are the things that the government doesn't tell you about. Like we, we have this government, it's like, oh, if we're wrong, you can just appeal. But they don't tell you what that means, what it means to suck up another year of your life or all of your expenses or just like all these other things. And the, the, the funny thing is like when you win, it's not like they give you your time back. You don't get your years of your life back and you certainly don't get all your money back that you spent on the case. And despite Simon's success in the lower courts, it still wasn't over. The federal government appealed to the final arbiter, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gets thousands of petitions every year, and very few get granted, maybe 2 or 3 percent. Simon's case got granted. When the United States government has lost a case saying that a federal statute is unconstitutional, which is what Simon Tam had successfully convinced courts to say, when the United States government is on the losing end of a decision like that, the Supreme Court is particularly likely to decide to hear the case because it's the federal government, that's the law nationwide, the government needs to know what the answer is. So that is a situation that the court is especially likely to take a case when the federal government has lost on a, on a major statute. When the Supreme Court decided to hear Simon's case, Matal v. Tam, we at Beckett recognized that it was time to put forward an argument that no one had before, that this disparagement clause in the trademarking process is disturbingly similar to blasphemy laws abroad. We talked to Asma Udin, former Beckett lawyer and expert on blasphemy laws. Asma gave us a primer. So there's a range of blasphemy laws in different contexts, different countries, different religious contexts. But in general, they all punish comments, in some cases much more than that. Like in the Pakistani context, it could be anything that's sort of like gestures or innuendos or any sort of reference symbolism that is considered insulting or blasphemous to religious figures or to religions generally, but the idea being that you've said something really problematic about a religious figure or religious text or religious belief. Unfortunately, of course, as you can tell, there, someone has to figure out what is blasphemous, what is insulting, right? And so they tend to protect a particular interpretation of religion. 
often because it's the government enforcing these laws that necessarily the government's interest gets caught up in that. And so a version of a religious belief that is in any way disparaging to or problematic to the government, right, in any way that challenges the government often comes under review. And then you see the sort of mixing of political interests with the so-called sort of religious interest at, at issue. The fundamental problem is that it, it ultimately it's, it's a form of thought control, right? Of thought control and, the, and then also the manifestation expression of those ideas and beliefs. It makes certain ideas acceptable and other ideas unacceptable. Essentially puts the government in charge of determining between the two and is extremely then susceptible to abuse. In some cases, like in this example that Asma gave of Pakistan, the penalties for violating a blasphemy law can be severe. So these laws tend to come with either uh, civil penalties, such as fines, and in many cases also jail time and the death penalty. And so even though the death, the death penalty is there, no one's actually been put to death because of blasphemy, but they have languished in prison for many years, as was the case, for example, most recently with Asya Bibi. That may sound like a very foreign idea in the United States because we're used to living in a pretty religiously pluralistic world. Or, you, know, you walk down the street, you're probably walking past people who have different beliefs about God and, and the hereafter than you do. That's just what it's like to live in America. Um, but in the rest of the world, it's, it's not so much that way, and they have these laws designed to stop those kinds of differences. Blasphemy laws are fundamentally problematic because they put much too much power over speech in the government's hands. The link in Simon's case was the argument the government was making that a trademark issued by the government was equivalent to government speech. That's a really dangerous argument, as both Asma and Mark explained. That was like a big issue in the case as to whether or not this was private speech or, or government speech. And they're just saying that just by the mere act of their registering the trademark, that it was basically that was their stamp of approval. And that suddenly just converted it from private speech to government speech. But if you do that, then it really kind of then you see the implications, right? That if you can just convert so very easily this vast amount of private speech into government speech, then that ultimately gives the government lots of control over uh, different types of expression and viewpoints. Google and Apple and, and all these other names that you see all the time are names and ideas. And some of them may have absolutely no political import. They may not matter. Um, some of them do. And the point is that the government shouldn't have the ability to regulate what are the words you're going to see this morning when you wake up? What are the words you're going to see when you flip on the, the, the music on your computer, right? What, what, what are the names you're going to see? If the government can regulate that, that's an awful lot of the speech that you and I hear and receive every single day. That's an awful lot of control of the ideas that come into our lives um, if they can regulate that. So you can say, well, it's just trademark. Who thinks about trademark? Most of us don't think about trademark most days. Most of us do encounter trademarked words and labels and ideas all the time. And if you silence the trademarks, right, if you make certain trademarks unusable or ungettable, then the government alters that marketplace of ideas. It changes what you and I get to see. And so the, the brief we filed at the Supreme Court was to, to draw a connection between what the federal government was doing in the disparagement clause and these blasphemy laws around the world to say that when you give the government the power in the name of keeping the peace, you give them the power to silence speech that is unpopular or speech that challenges the dominant group or the dominant idea, it's a very, very dangerous power to put in the hands of government. And it's almost a guarantee 
that that power gets wielded by the majority to suppress an un- unwelcome minority speech. Something that made the government's argument here seem really incongruous is the United States' role in speaking out against blasphemy laws on the international stage. The irony is that the United States has actually taken a strong stance um, under presidents of either party. This is not a Republican or Democrat thing. But the United States has actually taken a strong stance historically against blasphemy laws, against giving the government the power to protect people from speech that might criticize their religious group or their religious institutions. And the United States really should be commended for that. It is brave stuff to do. It was not easy to do. There was a big fight at the United Nations about it. And the United States showed up on the right side and said, no, government shouldn't have the power to punish speech just because it brings some religious group um, disparagement or into into bad repute. Um, But the irony of it is that while the United States was doing an excellent job on the international stage saying these laws are bad, um, they still had this disparagement clause on the books as part of federal trademark law. And so their arguments to the Supreme Court, even in the 21st century in the Mattal v. Tam case, were mirror images of what other governments around the world were saying at the UN in favor of their blasphemy laws. They were saying, we need to protect people. We need to protect religions from criticism. And you know, that's, that's a pretty serious contradiction for the United States government to, at home, be willing to say, well, we, the government, know what's, what's good talk about religion and what's bad talk about religion and the happy, positive stuff you can say and the negative, critical stuff you can't. Um, it's pretty hard to see why the United States government ought to have the ability to do that, particularly when they got it so right abroad. There were other briefs filed by other groups, but Beckett's made a unique point in tying what was going on here to blasphemy laws abroad and calling attention to that. I, I think it's an important point because of no one else is bringing it up. And so I think when it comes to things like expression, um, you know, it was just another perspective that kind of hammered things in home for the court to realize that trademark and registrations of trademarks is another type of expression. In the lead up to oral arguments on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Simon's band released an album called The Band Who Must Not Be Named. And they dedicated the album to the U.S. government. Sorry if I know it's too sharp. Sorry if I voice too raw. Don't make the pen a weapon and censor our intelligence until it costs me nothing at all. Sorry if you take offense. They wanted to play on the steps of the Supreme Court on the day of oral arguments, but Simon's attorneys nixed that. Well, we originally were planning a concert, like a rally in front of the Supreme Court, and we were going to play and, and talk about our case. And my attorneys are like, you can't do that. Like, we, we, you just absolutely can't do that. As I started doing research, I realized, oh, the court's actually not open on holidays. And like, it's, they kind of, the rules are a lot looser. So I was like, let's just bring our acoustic guitars. We'll just play. And if people are there, we'll, we'll talk to them. There is no need to pretend. It's funny because when we were playing um, on the steps, the the Supreme Court police came up, you know, because they have their own police. And the chief of the Supreme Court police came up to me and like, hey, you know, what are you doing here? And I was like, I started explaining my story. I was like, well, 
I actually have a case that's going before the court this Thursday. And let me tell you about it. And after I explained our position, they were like, I, I'm not supposed to say anything, but I hope you win. And if you want to keep playing, go ahead. You can play all you want. <laughs> so, A few days later, on January 18th, 2017, the court heard oral arguments in Simon's case. On the day of oral arguments, it was just a really interesting mix of things. Uh, because first of all, like you have the Supreme Court justices, and I, I deeply respect all of their work. And I, I know that it's like they have quite a difficult task before them. But you have you have these justices, and then you have the Solicitor General, so like one of the top attorneys in our country. They're all using my name. They're all using the name of my band. And all I could think of is like, I don't know who you're talking about because the band you're talking about is offensive, is harmful to their community, is doing horrible things. And I'm like, that's not me. Like, you don't know me. You don't know the work. You don't know all the stuff that we've done for our community. And it was just so ironic that I was fighting for freedom of expression in our nation's highest court. And in the courtroom, I couldn't say a thing. I used to have this fantasy, like leading up to oral arguments, that for some reason, Chief Justice Roberts would recognize me in the audience and he'd call on me and it's like, what do you think? Like, defend yourself. Like, why are you doing this? And I would actually have a chance to actually say all those things that I wish someone had the audacity and bravery to say in that courtroom. All the things that couldn't be contained in a legal brief or an oral argument in the traditional sense, because those were the principles that I was fighting for. And of course, that doesn't happen. So I, oftentimes um, when I describe what it's like in the courtroom experience itself, I say it's actually, it makes you feel even more small and insignificant and oftentimes invisible because they're talking about much bigger ideas. You know, these ideas around the constitution, uh, like, you know, it just happens to have my name on it. But the, the, the stuff they're grappling with is much bigger than that. After the argument, Simon had an experience that showed him a glimpse of the impact that his case would have on other people. After I walked out of the Supreme Court, I'm just like, my head is spinning, I'm frustrated. But as I enter the plaza, these two Asian kids uh, run up to me. and They told me that they flew all the way from California and they waited all night on the sidewalk to get in, but that there were too many people they couldn't get in. And they said, you know, we're freshmen in high school. And they said, you know, for our whole lives, we heard about you, about the band that was willing to fight for the dignity of our community. And that's when it dawned on me that the reason why I was fighting was because, like, the ability to express oneself without government suppression is, at the end of the day, about dignity. And I believe that it's a human right. I think it's essential. And I think that's kind of one of you know many reasons why we have the First Amendment to begin with, why we have this idea like to practice the kind of religion that we want, to be able to protest when we when we believe that there's something fundamentally wrong about our society, to, to, to express ourselves in these ways because it's about that dignity. The Supreme Court typically takes a few months to issue their decisions. So Simon took advantage of that time. 
So I actually went on tour. We crammed 75 appearances in the 60 days that followed oral arguments. And I went to every law school, bar association, or kind of like IP law think group that I could find and shared my story, hoping that it would just kind of trickle up to the ears of the law clerks because I heard that they kind of pay attention to what's happening. They, they kind of pay attention to the sentiment on the ground. And I was like, well, I want that sentiment to re- actually reflect the th- stuff I care about. And so I just made as much noise as possible for months. On June 19, 2017, the Supreme Court issued their ruling in Matal v. Tam. On decision day, I was totally exhausted and like not prepared for what was to come. Because, you know, for, for months I got up early every every Monday because I knew like, oh, you know, they, they, they released their opinions. And on that day, which is June 19th, I totally forgot. Like I didn't set my alarm. And so um, I wake up early because my phone is just going crazy. It's like 6 a.m. and I have over 700 missed notifications. So I'm like, wow, I guess something happened. <laughs> you know, I hop on Twitter and I find out that the Supreme Court ruled in our favor. It was unanimous. So the Supreme Court decided in an 8 nothing decision, essentially that Simon Tam is right, and that the government doesn't have the authority to not let him trademark his band name just because they think it's too offensive. And I think it's really important in a world where we often see the, the divided Supreme Court deciding something close or hot button, 5 nothing. Um, this is only eight justices. This is, I think, the year Justice Scalia had passed away. But all eight of them, left, right, and center, signed on to an opinion saying that uh, the disparagement clause offends bedrock First Amendment principles and that speech cannot be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. And I think that's it's really nice, actually, to see the broad agreement that we have on our Supreme Court about that core principle, that the government just doesn't get to silence speech because the government thinks it might offend somebody. In America, the truth is we all have to live with people who've got different ideas from ourselves. It's one of the beautiful things about walking around in this country is that you know, you're with people who aren't all clones of one another and who have minds that get to think for themselves. And we're not going to put the government in the, in the position of silencing some speech by saying, well, they're just protecting us from it. That's not the way it's going to work here. And the justices across the political spectrum recognize that. The court's decision effectively got rid of the disparagement clause. It also clarified the question of whether this was government speech. But I did appreciate that they said that the law itself was unconstitutional for for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that I was trying, a point that I've been trying to make for years, is that trademarks aren't government speech. Like private companies make, you know, goods and services, and they, they they make trademarks. And therefore, like the stuff that they create, or nonprofits, or artists, like in my case. Like, that that belongs to us, not the government. Two years after winning at the Supreme Court, the Slants played their final show. The last show we played was completely sold out. And so our community really showed up for it, uh, like on a Monday night. (laughs) But um, it was just so much fun. I mean, people were going nuts. They were jumping up and down and singing. And it, it was it was just probably the most fun I've had in this band in, in a very, very long time. And it just finally felt like like vindication. Like, you know, I, I didn't feel like the court saw me 
but like those were our people and I'll never forget like when uh, as we were taking the stage and, and, and I was just sharing a few remarks about like it being our final show and I was like you know we we did this thing where we fought for the right for our name and like the crowd just went crazy like they just cheered for us because they they knew and I was like we, we took down that law Simon is now focused on the nonprofit that he and his band have started. So we, we created something called the Slants Foundation to help fund um, artists who want to incorporate a bit of activism into their work, especially if they have like unconventional takes on social issues. I feel like this is my calling, is, is to try and help people understand like how they can be empowered citizens and how they can use art to do so. Because I, I, I truly, with all my heart, believe that we can use art to, to change the world. And so now it's time to step up and, and put my money and everything else I have where, where that is. Simon's case was a major victory for free speech, but also for religious liberty, because as Beckett argued, it's only a stone's throw from a disparagement clause to blasphemy laws. Probably the most remarkable piece of this case, though, like so many others, is the persistence of the person who stood up for his rights, Simon Tam. There was so much to Simon's journey to the Supreme Court, how taxing it was on him in so many ways, emotionally, financially. But in the end, he won his fight. You know, the the day that we actually played um, music on the steps of the Supreme Court on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, like on that day, we actually took our guitars after after we were at the Supreme Court and went right down the street to the MLK Memorial, and we started playing there. Um, we started singing songs with people who had gathered there, and I remember walking around and looking at each of these quotes that are carved into stone, and and the MLK Memorial is actually my favorite place in D.C. Uh, because I just so inspired every time I go there. But I remember seeing like perhaps one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King um, carved into stone that night. And it says that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I remember staring at those words and thinking, you know, it's true. It's true. Even though it's been over seven years, I realized that while the moral arc does bend, I realize the moral arc does not bend on its own. It requires patience, persistence, and people who not only understand their rights, but who are willing to fight for them, no matter what that price might be. Thank you to Simon Tam, Asma Udin, and Mark Rienzi for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode courtesy of The Slants and APM Music. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org and follow us on social media.